Welcome in once again, Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International. And we have another great episode coming up for you. But first, we wanted to tell you about a format change coming up in mid-March. Now, as we get closer, we'll give you more details on it. But let's just say that we've listened to you and you're really going to love what we have in store. But of course, there's another episode that we have that you're going to love as well. It's episode number 65. And let me tell you all about it. Michelle Henry's company specializes in research. And in this wide ranging episode, she talks about the importance of research, competing with bigger organizations, and how to take your own entrepreneurial journey. Episode number 65 starts now. Welcome to Women Really Mean Business presented by Athena International, the podcast that tells you the story of how women are impacting business one guest at a time. Now here's your host, Jeff Bolitnikoff, with another successful woman and her unique business journey. Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International. I am Jeff Blitnikoff, and time for another great guest. And this week we have Michelle Henry, M.A., and she is the principal and founder with 25 years of experience in quantitative and qualitative research. And then, of course, the name of the company is Center for Marketing and Opinion Research, CMOR for short. And you can check that out at CMOR research.com now there's just one r in there so you have to go cmo and then research.com that's how you find the website and michelle let's bring you in before i uh before i mess up anything else i was really close to messing up your website but i caught myself before i went went over into the mistake zone but uh, hey welcome thank you very much for being here and uh appreciate your time Oh, thank you for having me, Jeff. I really appreciate it. And no worries about the website. We get that a lot. I'm sure you do. It's uh, something that your brain wants to put two R's in there. At least my brain did. But yeah. it's cmoresearch.com. So that's how you get to it. But uh, I gave a brief on your bio. But uh, and, and as people know that listen to this podcast, I really do a very brief bio. Then I turn the floor over to the guest as soon as I possibly can. Because I'd like to hear not only what you're currently up to, but what, you, what brought you to what you're up to right now. And so love to hear it in your words. So welcome again. And Michelle, the floor is yours. Great. Well, thank you for for having me. Um, I think uh, I know that you mentioned that I'm the founder and principal of the Center for Marketing and Opinion Research. We actually call ourselves Seymour for short. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Seymour. (laughs) Yeah, which is why sometimes I think people want to put that extra R in that website. It's like Seymour Research, but it's really just Seymour. So we've been in business now for 13 years. Uh, before that, my business partner and I actually worked at a local university, basically doing the same thing we're doing now, but our department was disappearing, so we basically just transplanted it into the pub- into the private sector, out of the public sector. We still work with the same clients. We really have a lot of the same focus. Um, we even took a bunch of our employees with us. So. That's kind of a little bit about our background. Well, it sounds like kind of a scary prospect, right? Going into an entrepreneurial journey always is. So let's talk about, uh, I guess, maybe expand more on what got you into entrepreneurship. I guess that's a word, right? Anyway, what got you into being an entrepreneur and then what kind of mindset shift you had to do to get into that? Yeah, well, I think um, 
you know, I, I kind of, I, I think I'm kind of from the end of the generation where you go to work right after college and you work for the same organization until you retire. And that's just not really how the workplace is anymore. And I think um, after working um, close to a decade for a local university, it's the department that we worked for, our director retired, and it didn't look like they were going to keep that department around. And what we did um, in public opinion research for the public sector is really just such a specialized niche that there really wasn't opportunities for doing that in another area without starting our own company. So I think from that perspective, I don't know if it was as scary because you know, I, my life was here and I didn't want to move and, you know, it seemed like kind of the natural outgrowth is to just take our, our, our little department and put it into the private sector. In retrospect, there was so much I didn't know. And I think if I knew what I didn't know, I would have been a lot more scared. <laughs> so I think there was a lot of, when you ask about like the mind shift, there's a lot of mind shift between when you have an organization that backs you up to when you are like the organization that does the backing. So, you know, we, we um, you know, didn't kind of for granted the safety net that we had with a university structure. And even though, you know, I, I was the assistant director of that department and I felt like I ran the projects, I did the client work, I managed our budget, I kind of felt like I knew everything I needed to start my own business, but I really didn't know all that goes into it. It was so much more than just running a university department. Well, I want to go into the, again, a little bit more of your entrepreneurial journey in just a second, but let's take a pause here and have you give me an elevator pitch for Seymour. I, I just love that name. And uh, tell me all about what a client or a prospective client can expect, what kind of deliverables you have for people, and really how you serve your clients. So, so Seymour is a public opinion research company, and we specialize in working with organizations that make a difference in the community, like um, healthcare organizations, universities, schools, nonprofit organizations, government agencies. Because of our background in the university world, we really already had kind of a passion for working in the public sector. And when we started the business, though we could have expanded to the private sector, what we really enjoyed and, and wanted to continue doing was to work with those public organizations, um, those organizations that make a difference in the community, because it feels like, by extension, we're making a difference in the community as well. So that's, that's what Seymour specializes in. We um, have a call center on site. So we pretty much take the opinions of a group of people in any way you could possibly do that over the phone, on the web. We do focus groups. Sometimes we do in-depth interviews with people on an individual basis. But most of the time, we're just collecting that information that organizations need in order to better serve their populations better and to really be a better community asset. Okay, so how has maybe this changed over the years? Because I would assume with the advent of social media, the things that you have to follow and the complexity of what you do has probably just increased multiple fold. I don't even want to put a number on it, but uh, am I accurate when I say that? Yeah, really, the public opinion research industry has changed so much. We keep up with it by being members of the American Association for Public Opinion Research. 
But, um, you know, we went from when we were at the university, we just called landlines. And now we call cell phones. We incorporate web surveys. None of that, none of that was a thing, you know, uh, um, 13 years ago. So we've had to learn new technologies and how to keep up with, you know, getting the kind of the pulse of the community, but still doing it in a way that we can, you know, really let our clients feel that the data that they're getting is reliable and valid and still conforms to the best practices when it comes to collecting public opinion research data. What are the aha moments that you've had over your career as you've collected this data? In other words, like, what has this data helped your clients do? What kind of decisions are they making based on the public opinion? And who is your typical client? Is it a government entity? Is it a candidate? Is just I'm fascinated by this whole industry that I really don't know much about at all. I mean, you know about public opinion, but I only know about it on an anecdotal level. So I'd like to kind of get into the weeds with you here, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Yeah, we don't typically work for candidates. We, most All of our work is nonpartisan. Um, we may do some political polling, but generally that's more um, helping us to understand what the community thinks and feels so that we can see how that affects campaigns. But for the most part, we're working with government agencies or nonprofit organizations because they need to pass a levy to fund their services or because they need to do an assessment of the community because they need to better understand the needs so that they can support those needs. Because as quickly as things change, you know, in my industry, you know, the community around us is changing so fast and communication sources are changing so fast that it's hard for nonprofit organizations and government agencies and other public or other community-based organizations to really kind of keep a pulse on what the needs are because they're, they're changing so fast and how to best communicate with the community in order to let them know the services that are available and how to access them. We do a lot of work with organizations that support vulnerable populations, so people who um, have disabilities, people who um, are caregivers for other people with disabilities, people who are using support services from agencies that support mental health and drug addiction. So there's a lot of vulnerable communities that we help to support through this data. Do you find that you have more of a busy seg- schedule before a referendum is coming up or something like that? Like, say there's a vote in a particular county about... I don't know, some kind of issue. And are you finding that maybe you're getting more business around that time because they're really trying to understand every angle of where the public is it is at at that point before that vote comes up? Or is this just something that's more ongoing that clients use as something that's kind of part of their DNA? I think it's a little bit of both. We have some clients who keep a pulse on the community on a yearly basis because as a public organization, they serve the community, and so they want to keep a pulse on the community needs and how they're doing with that. So they, they really look at doing this every year or every couple of years. And then we have another set of organizations that are really based around elections because they have a, a ballot issue coming up, either because they're seeking funding for a levy in order to fund their operations, or you know there might be somebody who's interested in Um, an issue that's coming up and wanting to know what people think about it and how that might impact the community. So we do have like some busy times, 
generally presidential elections are busy for us. Not that we do any candidate work, but because a lot of people are trying to understand how the outcomes might affect the community and the services that are being delivered. Now, would you say it's more of government agencies or is it more nonprofits? Because that's going to precipitate my next question. We probably work with more government agencies than nonprofits. Okay, so I'm a government agency. Let's just say, for example, I work for the Division of the Social Security Administration. I'm just throwing that out there because I'm not even sure a Division of the Social Security Administration exists because I know so little about this space. And I come up to you and I say, and I don't even know what I say at this point. Like when, when a government agency is approaching you for the first time, what are some things that they're asking? What are some things that they're expecting as far as deliverables? And just anything you can tell me about the process that you go through, I think would be very helpful for listeners that are in the same boat I am that are kind of hearing about something like this for the first time. Well, instead of using Social Security Administration, why don't we use like um, a local park district? Yeah, so sure. Great. A, a, lo- a local park district might approach us and they might say, you know, that, you know, that they, they need to better understand how the community uses their parks, which parks they visit most often. They may even need to know if there's an, what the, their awareness is of what parks they have or what services they offer at those parks. They may also want to know what people would like to see in the future. You know, they have limited resources, so they want to make sure that they're putting their resources into things that are going to attract more park visitors or going to help to support the community in the need that it might have. Their need to support programs for youth, or is it for programs for people with disabilities, or do they need to have more programs to support um, senior citizens or other populations? So they may need to know on a regular basis what the community would like to see from them so that they can continue to support the community and then they continue to grow their organization. So you have somebody that engages with you on this and they give you a task. And like, and I love that parks example of trying to understand how people are using the parks, what kind of populations they're serving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So then after that, after you've been given your mission, then how do you go out and accomplish it? Uh, is it a lot of phone surveys? Do you have people on the ground? Uh, what is the process to give them a complete report back, the deliverables, if you will? Well, most of our projects, and, and this one included, would be accomplished over the phone. Phone surveys are still the best way to reach the largest number of people in the population, although we do supplement now with some online surveys in addition to the um, landline and cell phone surveys in order to be able to get a good representation of a community at large. So we would design a survey that would reach the population that they are looking for, asking the right questions to the right people, using the right methods. And after we are done collecting that data, we would put that then into a report that would let them see kind of a snapshot of what the community thinks about them, what they know about them, what they'd like to see. And if we've worked with them in the past or if they have previous data, then we'll also look at how that data is benchmarked. So we'll look at it compared to previous points in time so we can let them know how people are changing those perceptions. You know, maybe they've done some marketing and PR work around awareness of some of their parts so that lets them see if they're being successful in that area. Maybe they'd like to see how the needs have changed over time. So we try to make sure that we 
give them a report and walk them through that so that they can really understand what the community knows, what they think, what they want, and how that's changed over time. And how do you keep the research clean? Because this is something that I was thinking about as far as like data is just data and it can be interpreted a number of different ways. And like you said, you want to be nonpartisan. You want to just really just give the facts and let them make up their own minds. But it's almost like I'm reminded of a story of a negative farmer and a positive farmer. And the positive farmer would see the sun come out and say, oh, this is great. It's going to feed our crops and be good and give our give my plants the nutrients they need. And a negative farmer would say, oh, well, you know, that's going to it's going to burn my crops. And, I, you know, everything's going to be parched and it's never going to rain again and everything's going to die. And same facts. The sun is out. But the negative farmer and the positive farmer are looking at it two different ways. And as human beings, and I know this is kind of a long question, but as human beings, we can tend to see things through our own prism. So what are some things that you do intentionally to make sure that the data stays clean and the deliverables that you give to your clients are really pure research without any lean one way or the other? Well, I think the beginning part of that is really looking at you know, what the purpose of the research is and making sure that we are asking questions in a way that gives them just the straight facts. You know, we are not leading anybody. We're not giving them information. We're not acting in a way that we're getting information that is going to lean one way or the other. And then making sure we're asking the right group. Different people might feel different ways, but if we're looking for the community at large, we're going to want to make sure we're representing that community and not just taking a, a small section of that community. So it's, it's designing it to begin with correctly. And then as we're looking at it, like you said, people can interpret things in different ways, but, you know, most of the data as we collect it, you know, there's it's this or that. People either think, you know, they either have a positive view or a negative view they either go to the parks or they don't go to the parks. They either know about the parks or they don't know about the parks. Now, somebody on the other end of that can say, well, I'm concerned about this, but there's lots of ways of looking at the data in terms of being able to give them, I think, a deeper insight than just looking at the sun. So going back to your farmer, if the farmer then had additional information, such as the sun was only going to shine for a certain amount of time, that might alleviate the concerns of the farmer that might think that it's going to burn their crops. So, you know, we try to make sure that the data that we're giving, we're giving enough information so that people can really understand what that data means and what they can do with that data to make a difference. So they might want to use that information to form a better marketing campaign around the things that people don't know about. Or they might want to try to raise their approval ratings on some of their services by providing more education, but they need to understand more de- or deeper insights of that data than just understanding the simple information that's given at the, at the very top. Does that make sense? I rambling. It makes it makes perfect sense. And have you ever? And you don't have to answer this question, but it just brought up a curiosity in my mind that have you ever? turned down a potential client only because you knew that maybe the findings one way or the other would lead them to doing something that maybe you didn't as an organization believe in. Maybe it was a controversial subject that this organization represented and you knew one way or another you didn't want to have that client's mission furthered or am I off base here? 
I don't know that we've ever had that kind of ethical dilemma. And I think primarily because, you know, we work with community-based organizations that are looking to make a difference in the community. We've never had anybody approach us wanting to do a project that we didn't feel like was unethical or, or wasn't ethical. But I understand what you're saying because, you know, there there have been times when we've had clients, and not necessarily because they're, they're trying to be biased, but we've had clients give us questionnaires where the, the questions that they want to ask were definitely biased. And it wasn't intentional. It's just kind of human nature where we write things to get the information that we'd like to get in the end. And generally what we've always talked with clients is that it's important that we ask a question in a way that doesn't bias the results because it doesn't do you any good to know that a lot of people like you if, in essence, they only like you because you ask the question in a way to make them say they like you if they don't really like you. Does that make sense? It does. So, it does. It's great. Yeah. So I, I think we really approach it from that perspective that, you know, we do non-biased research. And I, I imagine if we had a client that ever pushed back on that, we might say, you know, that we couldn't, we couldn't do that project then. But we've really never had anybody who has wanted us to collect data that was biased. Well, Michelle, is it fair to say that it is both an art and a science in what you do? Because I was just thinking that, okay, there's a lot of hard qualitative data, but to get to that hard qualitative data, you have to ask the questions the right way. You have to design the right questions. You have to design them in a very non-biased, just the facts type of way. And you have to select the right group of people to ask that question and get enough of them to make it statistically feasible. So it just seems to me that there is both an art and a science to what you do, am I right? Yeah, you are right. That's so funny that you would say that because we often say that to a lot of people, the whole craze of being able to do your own things and survey monkey and and a lot of people think that they can just kind of throw out a, a survey. They can write questions and throw it out there and we'll often say that, you know, it is both an art and a science because you really need to understand what you're doing or otherwise the data that you're collecting won't really help you and could point you in the wrong direction. All right. I promised earlier that we would talk about your entrepreneurial journey. And then I just got so fascinated by the whole process of Seymour and what you do that I neglected to get back to it for a while. But I did not forget. And let's go back to what you'd said earlier about the fact that you thought you were ready because of all your training and academics and whatnot. And you are very accomplished in that area. But when it came to running a business, it was almost like kind of a, I don't want to say a shock, but something that was surprising. Let's put it that way. So talk to me about the adjustments that you had to make to go from where you thought you were ready to you finally were ready, because obviously you're running a very successful business now. Well, I, and I should qualify that by saying that, you know, from the very beginning, I never wanted to own my own business. I was comfortable working for an organization that had a safety net to it. But my business partner had always wanted to own her own business. And when things just happened the way they happened, you know, I was able to actually secure funding for the business. And when I asked her if she wanted 
to to open the business with me, she, you know, laughed hysterically. I think because, you know, she makes me brave and I probably wouldn't have done it without her. But I also think that I had that misconception that I knew the subject matter really well and we already knew what it took to run our department. So it shouldn't be that difficult. But I think really quickly we learned that without the university name behind us, even though we were the same people running that department and doing all that work, when we became our own company, we got a lot of people who questioned our background and our knowledge and our ability to do the work. That would be the same work we were doing with a different name, but still it was, you know, questioned. So we found right away that not having, you know, a big name behind you is, is a challenge when you're a new business. We also found that, you know, neither one of us had a business business background and it didn't really occur to us that that was important and, you know, not having any kind of a business background meant that it took us a little bit longer to figure out some of those business things that we, we didn't really have a lot of um, knowledge about. We didn't know a lot about marketing and business development because when you're a university, the business comes to you. So we found pretty quickly that we had to go out and, and find the business ourselves. So I think that there were some, some things that we just didn't realize were going to be as challenging as they were. It's funny you say that because it's like when you work for a big organization, you can come up and say to a potential person that you're working with, yes, I I work for organization ABC. And they're like, oh, OK, I've heard of ABC before and that's great. And they have the, almost that level of trust built in. And then you come out and you say, hey. I work for Seymour. And they're like, see what? And now, obviously, as you've gone out on through the years and you've done great projects and all that stuff, Seymour has obviously made a very good name for itself and it's very branded. But the branding of your business to start and when it's not known, that's got to be a daunting task. So maybe you could talk about how you were able to take something that really meant nothing to somebody from a branding standpoint and turned it into something. Well, and I will say that we were fortunate because we had worked at the university and the university department we worked for was being shuttered. We were able to go back to the clients that we worked with at the university and let them know that we were moving to our own venture. And for the most part, you know, we, we found, you know, a lot of acceptance and you know, people who were very eager to continue working with us in our new um, venture. We had a few people who, you know, said to us straight out that they thought that we were really brave and how did we think we could compete with the big guys. And I, I think that at the time, you know, we didn't really understand that comment. Those people ended up being clients of ours. But, you know, after we did our initial sweep through the clients that we had worked with at the university, we found that we had to start developing marketing plans, and we just read a lot. Uh, we read a lot. We talked a lot. We joined a lot of organizations, looked for people who could mentor us in, in terms of better understanding how to develop new business, how to market. I can say that, you know, really one of the game changers for us was when we uh, were selected as a recipient of the Athena PowerLink Award in um, 2012, where we were given a board of directors and or board of advisors. And that board of advisors really helped us to be able to put in perspective and understand things that we had never really been able to 
understand or find resources for in the past. I uh, want to go into the Athena experience you had in just a little while, and I'm really glad you brought it up. But And usually I give guests the floor two times, the beginning of the interview and then at the end of the interview. And you've already had the floor once, but I'm going to add uh, two additional floors for you. That didn't come out right. But anyway, I think the audience knows what I'm talking about, and you do too. But so the two times, and these are going to be two different questions that I want you to kind of address the audience. And you just started talking about it when you were talking about how you and your partner became better at business. You know, you read a lot, you got mentors, all that stuff. But maybe address our audience right now with any advice that you might have, because there's people right now listening that are thinking, I really have a great idea and I want to move away from my corporate job or my academic job and I want to start my own entrepreneurial journey. So what would you say to those people right now? What are some things they should do to maybe make that journey a little easier? Well, I would say the first thing I would always say is anybody who wants to do something that they're not currently doing, that they're passionate about, they should do that. Life is short and, you know, we should all be doing things that we're passionate about and that we love. And so, you know, from that perspective, you know, I would do this. I would make the same decision every time because I, I get to do what I love every day. For somebody, in terms of like more, I think hands-on things that they should do is, if you have the time, I would you know get some education. If I if I had known that one day I would be a business owner, I would have you know taken a few classes or you know done a little bit more um, investigating and understanding about business in general. Although, had I known more, I might have been too scared (laughs) to have started the business. So maybe, you know, in some ways, not knowing, you know, made me a little bit braver, uh, a little bit more willing to take that leap. So, but I, I would say if somebody was thinking about it. But I also think that one of the first things that anybody should do when they're starting a new venture is to create collaborations and partnerships and network, join organizations that are support what you do, but also support what your clients do or um, help you to get other people who you can bounce ideas off of. We belong to a boardroom group that's run by Norma Rist, who we met through the Athena Powerling program. And that boardroom group allows us to be able to bounce ideas off of other business owners. And, you know, we we have people in that group that are brand new business owners to people like us who have been in business for over 10 years to other people who have been in business for 20 or more years. And we all have an opportunity to learn from each other and to be able to share the challenges and the successes. And, and I think support would be the number one thing that I say any new entrepreneur or somebody looking to start a new business needs. They need that support. We'll be back with our guest in just a second. And if you're really enjoying what you're hearing here, why not get some extras from our guest? After every podcast episode, we have some fun questions for our guest that we give exclusively to patrons. All you have to do is go to the top of womenreallymeanbusiness.com and check out the Becoming a Patron section. For just $5 a month, you'll get extras from each week's guest. For just $10 a month, 
you'll get the extras and we'll release the podcast to you before anyone else gets it. Not only will you get great extra content for yourself, but you'll support not only this podcast, but Athena International as well. So again, please consider becoming a patron at the top of womenreallymeanbusiness.com. All right, let's get back into the episode. All right, question number two, as we continue to give the floor to you, and this is addressing people that, well, you know what? People that you may serve, like people that are in the nonprofit world or people that are works, work for a government agency, but just in general, our folks that are listening that are working, working in corporations or they own their own businesses, research, what would you tell them? And I know this is, I mean, we could probably do a four-hour interview on just research alone, but maybe if you could talk to people right now about what you think they should know about research, what some misconceptions they have are, you know, what are some misconceptions they may have, rather, and just really maybe help them understand more about how good research can help their organization or company. Yeah, I think um, the the number one thing that we hear from people about research is that it's expensive, and and it can be expensive because when you are doing quality research, you're engaging experienced interviewers, and there's a cost to having people who know what they're doing, and you know there's a human cost to doing phone surveys, but it's it is the best way to achieve that level of research, and so I think a lot of people they think well it's too expensive, and so. I don't need to do that research. I can just do something on my own or we'll just try things and see if it works. And I think in the end, it's actually more expensive to not do research than to do research because not doing research means you're just doing trial and error. Trial and error can be very expensive. Trying new things, looking, you know, whether you're doing a marketing campaign and you're just throwing something out there without having tested whether or not that resonates with your target audience. You know, marketing campaigns can be very costly, and if you're not resonating, that can be an expensive mistake. So what we often will say is that, you know, research allows you to be able to see things in a way that you might not be able to see them otherwise. It helps to guide you. It it might reaffirm the things that you already think, but it might also open you up to new possibilities or show you things that you hadn't realized were issues or challenges or strengths and allow you to be able to maximize your resources. So that's generally, you know, what we talk about a lot when when we talk to people about research. I think there's a common understanding that research is valuable and that most people wish that they had research to guide them and to help kind of illuminate their path and make, make it so that they feel more confident about the decisions that they're making, but they're just afraid that it's expensive. But there's a lot of ways to do research that can, you know, make it a good return on investment to do. All right, let's head into the Athena questions. And the first one I want to talk about is the Athena PowerLink. And I'd like you to expand on that. And you were... Your company, Seymour, was selected to be one of the first two Athena PowerLink recipients in Akron. And you touched on it a little earlier, but I'd love you to expand on what Athena and Athena PowerLink has meant to you, your partner, your company, and the direction of your organization. So, so I think, um, you know, I think I said it before that, you know, the Athena PowerLink was really kind of a game changer for us. To that, to that point in time, you know, we had... You know, we had sought out 
people to help provide answers. We had joined organizations, and all of that had been somewhat helpful, but the Athena Power Link was really a pivotal moment in our company because it, it brought us to several mentors, Eileen Shapiro and Norma Rist, who have been incredible resources for us. And then it also brought us the PowerLink program, which gave us a board of advisors who helped us beyond measure to better understand the things that we didn't understand in a way that, that we could understand it. You know, kind of cutting through all the jargon and understanding it from a fellow business owner perspective. We better understood our financials. We better understood how to market and develop. But more importantly, we better understood ourselves and the right way to look at how to grow the business as opposed to just kind of throwing stuff against the wall and hoping that it would stick. We really learned how to, how to better look at what we do, how we do it, and understand how to be more cost-effective, efficient, how to get a better return on our own investments so that we could pass it on to our clients and how to um, look at growth in a way that really helped us to grow in a more, in a a smarter way rather than just trying to grow for the sake of growth. That's a great, uh, that's a great answer as to why Athena PowerLink is so vital in communities. And really it was all started by Martha Mertz and, She has eight Athena leadership principles from the book Becoming Athena, eight principles to enlighten leadership. And of course, she is the one and only Martha Mertz. She is the founder of Athena International. And I'd like you to comment on one of those principles and your principle. and, And I think this is a perfect one for you, because one thing I didn't mention in your bio is you sit on community boards. Uh, you were a speaker at a TEDx women event, and uh, you're all about giving back. And that's what I want you to talk about, the principle give back. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so I think, you know, when I think of the term giving back, I think of it as a culture of doing good for others, whether that's like a directive or a value espoused by our company or by something that we bring individually. The reason my business partner and I founded Seymour was based on that principle of giving back to the community. We wanted to do good in the community by helping organizations that make a difference. We established our business on low margins and efficiency in order to maximize community-based resources by giving them affordable options to collect the data that they need to serve the community better. But on a more individual basis, Amanda and I have been on the receiving end of giving back with Seymour being selected to take part in the PowerLink program. And we've tried to pay that forward by continuing to reach out to women business owners that are selected for PowerLink. We generally will make ourselves open as a resource for businesses that are newly entering that program, as well as others that are just seeking advice or even just someone who can understand where they are and how we can help to guide them through difficult times because, you know, as, as business owners, but maybe even as more uniquely as women business owners, you know, there are definitely times when you have to like push through it and you know that there are times that it's going to be hard and you question your will to continue and you know whether or not you can survive it and and I think that you know we we want to continue that you know principle from Martha Mertz of giving back by continuing to reach out to those who are going through those same phases that we've been through and helping them you know, with whatever guidance or help we can, you know, just to make them, help them to understand that they're not alone. 
And that really dovetails beautifully into the final Athena question about how you are helping to develop women leaders. And it seems like you and your partner and your organization are very intentional about doing that by really kind of, for lack of a better term, getting in the trenches and uh, really meeting them where they're at and then helping them through, like you said, those inevitable difficult times. Yeah, definitely. When I worked at the university, you know, I didn't really see efforts or opportunity to elevate other women other than what I could do on an individual basis with women that reported directly to me, you know, mentoring and creating opportunities for them. But it wasn't until I became a business owner that I really realized both the need and the opportunities to elevate other women. And, you know, obviously having the role models that, you know, I've discussed like with um, Norma Rist and Eileen Shapiro and the Powerling program, but also being part of the boardroom groups where we can continue to both receive support and also support and celebrate what other women are doing, their development, their challenges, their successes. And, you know, continuing, we, we continue to, to bring people to the Athena events, you know, young, um, young business owners, but also people who are young in their careers and, you know, helping to try to connect them and help them to, to grow individually through, I think, some of the great Athena events where, you know, you are bringing new business, new, uh, uh, young, young leaders, helping them to understand the path to being um, both an emerging leader and uh, an established leader. Well, let's talk about resources, and uh, I'm going to mention a couple resources, of course. See more research, and it's so much easier to say it that way as opposed to C-M-O-R-E-C-S-E. I can't even say it, <laughs> but it's yeah, we, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a tongue twister. Try to say that th- three times real fast, but seemoreresearch.com. And of course, there's one R in that. TEDx, I know that you would probably mention as a resource for people because you were a part of TEDx Women. And Athena Powerlink, I'm sure that would be another one of your resources. But are, what are s- some resources that we haven't covered in this podcast? What would you suggest our listeners plug into that can inspire, educate, inform them, etc. Well, and I I think, you know, in thinking about resources, I guess I, you know, maybe, and maybe it's just because of, you know, the type of business that I, I own and really where we have found our biggest inspiration, but I really feel like plugging into your community resources, other women-led groups, groups that support women um, own business or support women leaders. Um, there's multiple organizations, including Athena in our community. And, and I feel like those are really the resources that we have used and that I would recommend to other people and, you know, finding mentors and role models. And those are really the resources, the human resources that I feel like are so critical for somebody who has looking at emerging as a leader or who is looking at becoming an entrepreneur or owning their own business. Well, for the fourth time in this interview, and if the first three times are an indication of what the fourth time is going to be like, it's going to be awesome. But I'm going to give you the floor for the fourth time, Michelle. Michelle Henry, M.A., of course, she is the owner of Seymour Research, and along with her partner. And I want to give the floor to you once again and have you wrap up this interview and address the audience with whatever you'd like to say as we end this. So, again, Michelle, the floor is yours. 
Well, I think one of the things that I mentioned, you know, earlier that the Athena PowerLink really did for us was helping us to better understand smart growth. And I think also you had asked me another time, you know, what, you know, things that we had wish we had known or, and I think that that, that whole aspect of smart growth and when you're a, a new business, even maybe an established business, there's just this push to like grow. And everybody says you have to grow. And if you're not growing, you're not successful. And, and I think a lot of times as a business owner, we feel compelled to grow even when we're not growing in a smart way so that we use up our resources in a way that isn't smart. So it took us a long time and the Athena PowerLink program really helped us to better understand how to grow in a way that was smart. So instead of investing in growing our staff and bringing on lots of new people, we invested in the people in our company. So we invested in in their education and growing their abilities and strengths in order to better support our organization without having to add additional staff members. We support, we learned that part of smart growth was learning to add collaborations and partnerships and um, looking at resources in the community like the boardroom group and the Athena organization. Instead of having to add those resources in-house, we could look for that kind of advice and that kind of um, specialty and different aspects that we needed to grow, but we can look for them outside of our organization instead of needing to build that into the organization. So I think that that learning that concept of smart growth through our um, year with the PowerLink really made a difference in, in our ability to grow the business in a way that allows us to still enjoy being business owners so that we can you know, still continue to help more organizations to further their goals and to help them support the community in a, in a better way, but in, in a way that allows us to be able to still enjoy the work that we do and not just continue to grow for, grow for the sake of growth. So I think that that's, you know, something that I really wanted to expand on because I do feel like that's a misnomer in the popul- in the community thinking that, you know, if you're not growing, you're not successful. And I think that there's a lot of other ways to grow other than just traditional ways. Well, Michelle Henry of Seymour Research, and that's seymourresearch.com. I'm not going to try to spell out the website address anymore. In fact, we'll just link to it in the resource section because I think that'll be a lot easier than you all trying to listen to me. But all kidding aside, though, Michelle, thank you very much for all the time this week. Really appreciate it. Great, great topics and talk and definitely learned a lot, something I didn't know about. So, again, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. We really appreciate the opportunity to both highlight our business and also highlight the importance of women-owned businesses in the community. Coming up on the next episode of Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International. Kelly McCausey is an internet marketing expert and is as authentic as they come. In this talk, you'll learn why it's so important to build a community, no matter what your business is, and why it's important to have real communication. Here's a little bit from Kelly. When I started, my community was meeting on a forum, a private forum on my own website. Up until three years ago, uh, they asked to move to Facebook because they were already spending time there 
and it was a super mobile-friendly environment. Please help us grow, and it is so easy. All you have to do is rate and review us on the podcasting service you use to listen. It is so valuable and important. Thanks in advance, and we hope you're back for the next episode of Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International.